Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the uh, Harvard School of Public Health. Um, this is a very special occasion. Uh, we we're here at the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health, as the name indicates, the Forum is a meeting ground where we try to bring the voices of policymakers <coughs> into our academic community and engage in a dialogue. Uh, we're very honored to have today a very distinguished uh, group of ministers and secretaries of health from around the world. Uh, they've been at Harvard for the last few days participating in the first edition of the Harvard uh, Ministerial Health Leadership Forum, a group of ministers, 16 ministers from around the world, and a number of former ministers and, and secretaries of health uh, that, that have gathered around issues of leadership uh, facing uh, the, their, their respective countries. We are going to begin our uh, forum today with a panel of commentators that I will introduce in a minute, uh, here to my left, and then uh, because we also have very distinguished current and former ministers and secretaries in the audience, we'll engage in some comments also from, from the audience and also any questions that you may want to uh, raise. Let me first introduce our panelists and I'll go in the order. Uh, first here to my left, uh, left is uh, Tedros Hanom, very better known as Minister Tedros, the Minister of Health of Ethiopia. He is the longest serving minister in Africa and a widely recognized leader uh, with many, many accomplishments. Next we have uh, Sujata Rao, who's the former Permanent Secretary of Health in India. Uh, and she has also been uh, at the school as the inaugural Brundtland Fellow, a fellowship, a senior leadership fellowship that we've created for people who have just left office, as, as her case, she retired recently, having a very distinguished uh, career uh, in the Indian public service, culminating with her role as permanent secretary. And I'm also very, very happy to welcome Recep Akdag, the Minister of Health of Turkey. Now, he is the longest serving minister in the whole world. Uh, with 10 years in his experience, Tedros has seven, and as I said, he's the longest serving minister in, in, um, in Africa. So we have a very distinguished and experienced uh, group of panelists here today. Uh, and I'm very grateful for, for their uh, presence. So we're, we're going to um, have a conversation, and as I say, later on we hope to engage uh, our audience as well. But let me get started uh, by uh, asking each of you um, to very briefly uh, mention an outline, name an outline. What was the biggest challenge you faced when you became minister? What was the, that uh, challenge that kept you up at night uh, and where you said this is either where I'll make it and be successful or where I will fail in this position of high responsibility as Minister of Health. What was that challenge, Tedros? Yeah, thank you, Julio, and thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I think the, the biggest challenge, I don't want to take it as a personal issue, uh, to be honest. Uh, the biggest challenge for our government was really uh, selling the idea of uh, giving priority to, to primary health care. Uh, when our government was mandated to lead the country, it said primary health care should be at the center and building hospitals should be, you know, second priority. Because as you know, not only in, in Ethiopia, but in our continent at large, the major health problems are maternal health, child health, HIV, TB, and malaria. And these are our priorities. And this could be addressed through simple public health solutions and also uh, focusing on uh, the primary health care. Um, if uh, especially you mobilize communities uh, to produce their own health, meaning uh, having the knowledge, transferring knowledge to communities, uh, transferring skills, <coughs> and then helping them to do, to do it uh, themselves. Uh, that means centering on health promotion and health prevention. So it was very tough to really uh, sell uh, this idea. And uh, even starting from the top level, some um, top leaders were not convinced. 
even health professionals were not convinced. And it was even more difficult also to convince the communities because worldwide, as you know, uh, people believe in big hospitals, you know, big elephants, not in primary health care. But considering the health problem that we have in Ethiopia and in our continent, that's uh, actually the best solution to give priority to the primary health care. Anyway, we really uh, focused on that and started building institutions for the primary health care and through time started to really convince many, starting from the top down to the communities. And, and I will ask you about what you did, but uh, let's keep now the, the problem, uh, a very common problem, changing the perception uh, both of the political leadership outside of the Ministry of Health, but also of the population that uh, re it's really hospitals and highly medicalized systems that make the difference. And you were, you were struggling with, with changing that, the, the way we actually think, both in, in, in government, but also in the population, a, a very common and very profound system. And I'll come back to you because you're gonna tell us uh, how come you, you surmounted that challenge where many others have, have, uh, have hit a wall and you've obviously been very successful uh, since you're still here as Minister of Health. Uh, Sujata, what about you? What, uh, what was that single big challenge in India? Uh, you know, in 2005 when the government took over, they had announced a flagship program called the National Rural Health Mission, which got a threefold increase in funding uh, than the last 60 years that we've had from the budgets that we've had. And it was one major sincere political effort made to try and revitalize the primary health care system, which had uh, truly got uh, very badly uh, and adversely affected in major parts of the country with the result that we, we had a very huge burden of communicable diseases and, uh, and unaddressed problems of maternal and child health. So when I took over, and the program was, uh, uh, was launched in 2005, and when I, when I took over as a secretary in the ministry, I found three st startling things which I didn't realize had happened. One was that there was uh, inadequate application of evidence to the policy design. The policies macro, uh, if you look at it on the broad macro ways, the, the, all the ingredients were there, they were absolutely correct but uh, the evidence in the policy designing is different from policy articulation. And that's where I found uh, uh, an issue. The second important thing was that the dialogue between the center and the states was just not there. Mm. there the center, center had uh, believed, the federal government believed that this, since the, since the state, uh, health was a state subject and it's a federal government, we should just release funds to the states and let them do what they want. But there wasn't any dialogue between what outcomes you're getting and with the result that the funding that we were giving from the central government were not getting into translated into the outcomes that, were that reflected the original plan. Uh, and uh, so therefore managing decentralization is a very important policy issue. And that I didn't think was uh, done very well. Uh, and the third major uh, issue that I found was uh, that the infectious diseases had been completely subsumed under the overall priority, priority that was being given to maternal and child health, mainly the reproductive child health program. So both TB and malaria, which have a huge morbidity and mortality in the country even today, were completely neglected uh, in, in this process of trying to uh, bring in a huge large-scale primary sector reform, but, uh, and therefore a horizontal approach, which is often referred to as horizontal vertical, but in the process, the management between uh, keeping the tension between vertical program while you achieve a horizontal uh, um, uh, goal was, again, not managed very well. These were my three major challenges, which took up a lot of my time. Very interesting. So, so we'll come. A, a mix of um, a very fundamental political question, especially how you deal with the, with the states, the state federal, uh, and even in non-federal countries, you know, implementation, the gap between implementation uh, and formulation of policy at one level of government and implementation at another is a very pervasive problem. And then this, this balance between the strengthening and at the same time uh, keeping the focus on specific outcomes around major uh, health um, uh, challenges. Uh, Recep, uh, what's, what about Turkey, a very interesting emerging and vibrant economy and you've been now the minister for 10 years. But when you started, what, what did you th think was your 
fundamental problem. Ben de çok teşekkür ediyorum size ve bütün dinleyicilere gerçekten benim için. And like my colleagues here, I would like to extend my thanks to you and the audience for this opportunity. I feel privileged to be here amongst you. Uh, in Turkey, uh, the problem was threefold, actually. Uh, we could categorize as political, ethical and technical challenges. But the first and foremost, uh, as we saw it, uh, was the ethical uh, part. So let me start with it, if you allow me. So when I took office 10 years ago, uh, the picture was healthcare overall was supply oriented. Nobody had a care for the demand of the citizens. Nobody felt any obligation to find out what the demands might be. And there was no ethical ground to make that query uh, either. So uh, we had uh, a need for a fundamental shift in the paradigm. That was my decision. I need to base uh, this shift of uh, paradigm in my transformation thoroughly uh, on the basis of ethics. Uh, because health is a fundamental human right and it can in no condition be delayed. Thank you very much. L let me get into a, um, a second round. Uh, faced with that, uh, and, and, and there's a commonality here, uh, there's you know, breaking existing paradigms. I think the word you use uh, just now is, is very important. Um, whether it is the supply versus demand side, the idea that we're always looking at what do we do on the supply side, but, but getting the demand, the population perspective, or breaking the dominance of hospitals uh, and, and empowering the primary care and the, the communities, or, or dealing with, with this question of balancing the vertical and horizontal and, uh, and, and also changing the rules of engagement in the face of a whole new program between the center and, 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 and the states, um, those all required a new paradigms, new ways of things. So what were those uh, policies, uh, those transformative policies that, that you adopted? And, and also, if you, want to, if you want to comment briefly on what were the obstacles that you found as you were trying to implement those policies? Um, uh, I think uh, when you uh, think about especially uh, centering on primary health care, as I said earlier, uh, it's really very difficult to sell it. And there are, uh, you know, uh, wrong attitudes starting from the top to the community level that prevent you from uh, really focusing on primary health care. So what we did was we tried to identify the root causes uh, of the problems, uh, the underlying causes, and tried to engage, uh, you know, starting from the top up to uh, communities after we have uh, identified the root causes and tried to, uh, uh, you know, uh, solve them through uh, participatory uh, uh, mechanisms uh, because unless you convince and try to really help understand the reason behind you know the importance of primary health care you cannot really implement primary health care through coercive uh, measures so the first thing was to really reach a consensus to discuss candidly to reach a consensus on the uh, solution the problems and solutions and then to have a common understanding or commitment to uh, push with the primary health care. I think overwhelming majority started to really understand the benefits of primary health care. But you cannot just solve everything through dialogue. You have to start, and it's when you start practicing the new thing you're advocating for, that the real change comes. So side by side, we started building uh, you know, the primary health care. Everybody knows that since Almada, for instance, 30 years ago, everybody says primary health care is important. But one of the reasons for its failure is of the Almada declaration, you know, very few countries have actually gone into implementing it by building institutions. So the second thing we decided was while building consensus to build the institutions, real institutions that work with communities, like what we call in Ethiopia Health Extension Program. Instead of relying on uh, volunteer workers, we took primary health care as part of the formal sector 
and we trained tens of thousands of female health workers and deployed them throughout the country. We trained more than 38,000 now, and two health exchange workers per village now are serving the communities. So communities started to rea realize the benefits now. Because if you talk about primary health care, as what my colleagues were saying, there are political determinants, economic determinants, and social determinants. It's a lifestyle change in, gener in general that can bring the, uh, you know, the better health outcome. So this cadre of health professionals, new health professionals, went to the communities and work at the grassroots, help people understand uh, you know, the benefits of it by doing it actually. So the tens of thousands of health exchange workers try to teach the communities uh, and change their uh, attitudes by transferring skills and knowledge and people now feel empowered to really take, uh, the, you know, uh, take responsibility for their, for their own health, which means they can produce their own health if they have the right skill and, and knowledge. So I think it's a combination of the two. While discussing candidly, identifying the problems, reaching consensus on the problem and solution, and commitment to go and apply them, and also on the other side, building real institutions to advance that idea and learn from practice or from experience because you cannot really learn from uh, theory alone. So as soon as we started implementation, I think people started to really even take, take it uh, and also understand it and see the benefits uh, and take it as a way uh, forward. Very interesting uh, lessons here. Uh, there, there's often in the, when, when there's the challenge of transformational uh, leadership, uh, the, 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 the need to build consensus often leads to what's been called paralysis by analysis, where you analyze and discuss and discuss and you never get to actually, and what you're saying is the action itself was feeding into the consensus building. So these were not just parallel but actually convergent processes. And uh, the, the, the other very interesting point, and I think the, the great innovation, was exactly your idea of building primary care as part of the health system and not a parallel uh, underfunded uh, uh, set of activities for the poor. Very often primary health care has become primitive health care and uh, relying on voluntary work uh, di di disconnected from the other. So your idea of making this actually the centerpiece of the, of the formal health system was I think uh, and you, you'll tell us in a moment the, the, the results uh, you, you, you achieve, but I think those are very uh, valuable lessons from the Ethiopian experience. Uh, so yet, uh, what were the main policies that you enacted to deal with the challenges you identified initially? Well, I think to begin with on the reproductive child health, which, is, uh, which has a very high political visibility, because we also have one of the largest world's largest uh, conditional cash transfer program where government gives uh, almost 30 to $40 uh, to a pregnant woman for coming for institutional delivery. Now in that program what we found was uh, that resources were being sp were e distributed to all the facilities equally. Uh, whereas when we went and analyzed the data we found about only 10% of the facilities uh, women literally were voting with their feet because they had the faith in that particular nurse or they had a faith in that particular center or the facility was more conveniently located whatever the reasons be but women were tending to go there for deliveries and there were almost 75%, three quarters of facilities where there were no deliveries being conducted, yet they were getting the budgets. So there were some facilities overloaded with, uh, with these pregnant women uh, and the, the doctors and the nurses too tired, too exhausted and too precious to allow them to go for training, whereas the others where there was not such a load were free enough to get trained over and over again. So that is the first thing that we did was to bring in data and evidence and, uh, and uh, you know, today we have identified that out of about almost 175,000 public facilities, it's only in about 20,000 or so where the deliveries are being done. So that's monitorable. It's easy to see that quality assurance is uh, implemented. It is easy to monitor these 20,000 facilities to say what's happening to the woman uh, and how is she being treated and what are the outcomes and follow up and so on. So that was, I think, one uh, uh, example where we brought evidence to to redesigning the policy. Uh, in, so far as the vertical and the, the horizontal tension, 
you know, no matter how much we recognize the merits of a horizontal approach and a comprehensive approach to health, when it comes to diseases like TB and malaria, the focus has to be there, the vigilance has to be there 24 by 7, 365 days. And, uh, and there, it, it, the distortions that were coming in with this huge funding, the states were busy trying to appoint nurses or, or a health worker, but they forgot to, uh, to provide the critical staff laboratory technicians or the district malaria officer at the district level or the district TB officer, they were not getting, those positions were not being filled in. So we had these large vacancies, there were huge problems and this was completely neglected in the review formats. So when, uh, you know, first of all my job was to get this, the political visibility. So we had the minister to write to the state ministers on the condition of malaria and TB and other vector-borne diseases and in the first meeting of ministers this was put as the first agenda, just because to, to, to draw attention to the fact that we cannot forget uh, and lose focus on controlling infectious diseases. These have to be uh, part of your psyche, no matter where you move in the health agenda, uh, till they are completely contained and controlled. And uh, subsequently, every two months, I began to have a meeting with the, with the, with the officials. So that's how we brought it back center stage in the ministry. The third uh, um, challenge was uh, center state and here again there was uh, funds were being released to the states and rightly it is a federal country and the states must have the autonomy to make their priorities but there were certain national priorities that they had to adhere to because what they do or don't do on particularly communicable diseases impacts on uh, what happens in the other states. So uh, and the secondly they, they, the many states had uh, needed a lot of technical advice, needed a lot of uh, technical assistance, which was there with the central government, not really there at the state level. And so this, this uh, constant dialogue with the state and the center at frequent intervals by not only coming to Delhi, but many of my teams going to the states helped a lot in trying to uh, make them understand the central guidelines with greater clarity. I think this communication between the policy makers and the implementers is a very, very crucial but often overlooked issue. We just think by issuing a guideline, it's understood. It's not. It's not really understood. They understand it their own way. And uh, therefore, there has to be this, uh, as I used to keep saying, you have to, to my officers, that you've got to have a look in the eye of every implementer and know him by the name. And that's real leadership, I, I think, uh, that the program officer is able to really know the people who are actually implementing in the field intimately enough. So. Thank you, Sriyada. In a sense, your first challenge with the <coughs> rural health mission, introducing the uh, conditional cash transfers to create an incentive for women to deliver in facilities is, is, is very much a demand side intervention. So, so has that connection with, uh, with uh, what the minister from Turkey was telling us uh, that, uh, uh, about making that shift? And it, it is a way of having money follow people uh, rather than the sort of inertial way of budgeting. Uh, you, you, so, so it is very much in that same category of, uh, of uh, reform. So I, I'd like to ask you, Recep, what were the policies that you, uh, as, as you were trying to switch your entire health system towards being more sensitive and empowering citizens, what were the specific policies that you put in place? Here, uh, I would like to uh, briefly tell a story from the esteemed Sufi Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. Uh, he says, release three or four people blindfolded to an elephant and let them touch different parts of the elephant and uh, ask them to describe that elephant or what they are touching. The one touching the foot will, will tell that the elephant is a foot. The other will tell it's an eye, the other will tell it's a back or whatever. Well, uh, that, uh, that was the landscape uh, in Turkey's healthcare system. There was no systematic approach at all. And the health transformation program ne uh, needed to address all the systematic failures uh, at once and in a systematic approach. The, fi the financing part was fragmented. There was no equity in healthcare distribution. We had uh, severe problems with emergency healthcare, primary healthcare, and the hospital uh, services were uh, fragmented uh, by different segments of the uh, society. And uh, uh, 
public uh, specialists or consultants, as you might call it, usually apply dual practice, both in the uh, public hospitals and then in their private offices. And no citizen uh, had the luxury of getting uh, service from public hospital. You needed to uh, visit the doctor in his uh, private office afterwards. What we needed was universal uh, health coverage, uh, both effective and equitable in distribution of health care from the side of uh, insurance and from the side of care at the same time. And uh, parallel to that, we had to uh, quickly introduce the family uh, medicine system to take care of the primary health care uh, problems. Actually, this is a very uh, uh, one long story, but uh, to keep it short, we implemented the reform in a multifaceted manner in parallel uh, components running at the same time, and we had to act very, uh, very uh, quickly in order to make this very uh, unique uh, health transformation uh, possible in a, uh, within the course of 10 years. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Let me, before we return um, for a final round of comments to our um, panelists, open it up to, to the audience for questions or if you want to uh, make a comment, I, I would just ask uh, whoever wants to intervene to stand up and identify yourself. So let me first recognize uh, Agnes Piñahuajo, who is the Minister of Health of Rwanda, and we're delighted to have her here today. So, uh, thank you. I can see that whatever place you are in the world, the problems are the same. How to get care to the people in the most needed area. This is the problem they have all feel. And uh, if I take my, my own experience, it's the same. Um, what, whatever, in all developing countries, there is not enough. So we need to prioritize and we need to make choices. And uh, when I took office as minister, uh, I was in the sector for more than seven years. We have stabilized infectious disease. Uh, we had to stabilize maternal and child uh, health. And we have to stabilize the universal coverage of the health insurance. Stabilize means sustainability. Because we have a health sector that rely for 50% to the global solidarity. And this is uh, something that is important because when you have that, you are not sure of tomorrow. Meaning it depends of parliament and Congress outside what they are going to vote. And we cannot influence f 10 countries. So uh, we need to, whatever we do, and we have a community health system that in each village, provide care, primary care, even the lay people, but they provide antibiotics for pulmonary disease, malaria treatment, etc. The five major killers are covered at community level, and we keep the 80% of the diseases. 90, more than 90% of Rwanda have a health insurance that cover primary care. And we have managed now by stratifying it to make it more equitable. Because before, my mother was paying the same amount per year than the person working for her. So it's all those things that was great this week. We discuss about strategic thinking. We discuss about how to make things happen when they need to happen. How to seize opportunities. And how to, in different settings, try to conceptualize what is to be a better minister. So I, uh, I, I think that those leadership uh, training are really about leadership, strategic training, st strategic thinking, and make decisions. Thank you very much. Um, it's a, a very interesting um, experience, the one in Rwanda, and I think uh, I, I would highlight the way, the language you used, which I very much applaud, uh, not uh, development cooperation, uh, not aid, which are highly asymmetric. You spoke of global solidarity, and I think that's the way we need to talk about those financial flows. And if we look at them, then they ought to be predictable. They ought to be long-term. 
They ought to be driven by countries and not subject to the uncertainty that you were mentioning. So uh, uh, very interesting. And of course, you, you have been such a formidable leader, Agnes, that uh, that, that is happening but it, it's a, it's a, in Rwanda, but it's a lesson for, for, the, for the whole world. Um, Wafai, you had raised your hand. Wafai Fauzi, I'm a professor of global health and nutrition uh, here at the school, and I'm originally from Sudan. I have a question for Minister Te Tedros. Um, so over the last few years, uh, Ethiopia has made significant strides in improving health um, from HIV to TB, uh, malaria. Uh, you're making significant uh, advances on primary health care and maternal health. That's in spite of significant challenges, not only in Ethiopia, but in other countries in the region, in Africa particularly, uh, particularly limited resources and ethnic tensions that uh, are uh, quite common uh, in Ethiopia and neighboring countries. So my question to, to you is, uh, what are the factors that uh, contributed to your success uh, in improving health in spite of these challenges? And um, are there any challenges or uh, failures that you have met that uh, improved your own growth as a leader uh, in Ethiopia? First of all, shukran for the question. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's um, a very important uh, question. Uh, as he had said, uh, you know, especially with limited resources, it's uh, uh, really tough to, uh, uh, you know, achieve good results. Uh, so that was one of the challenges. By the way, when Julio asked me to take one challenge, I restricted myself to the primary health care challenge, you know, introducing that because that's uh, one of the strategic uh, challenges we had. Otherwise, the financing part was one of the major challenges, financing health. And as what Anya said, many of the developed, developing countries, including Ethiopia, are donor dependent for their expenditure in, in their health sector and Ethiopia is, is, is one. Uh, and uh, one of the challenges at the time was uh, when we started, uh, you know, focusing on the primary health care, uh, side by side, we saw this uh, challenge of uh, health financing and we started engaging our uh, partners. First, we had to sell the idea of, you know, focusing on primary health care. Some had concerns and even serious reservations, especially when you introduce the formal, uh, you know, we're uh, introducing primary health care, especially the grassroots or village level services as part of the formal sector. Many had reservations. They were even saying, you know, will you be able to do it? Uh, but I think that has already been done. But at the same time, after really uh, showing to our partners what our vision is, what our goals are, and what our priority is, then we started asking them to help us on that. And what I always speak about, you know, the country ownership issue. Of course, although many partners had some concerns, but they started helping us. At least they said they know what they want to achieve and they know how to get there. So why not we just, uh, you know, help them? So the financing part comes around that. So we started mobilizing uh, the, you know, finances uh, for it. But there were two problems there. One is the amount of funding we're getting was small, and two, the quality of what, uh, you know, the financing was also uh, not good, especially the aid architecture w w was not good. So we tried to address both, increasing the funding we get, both international and domestic, but at the same time, especially the inter international one, uh, to impact it, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, we get money in a f you know which is uh, flexible so we started engaging our partners to commit for a basket funding so that basket funding means you can get the funding to uh, resource your priorities based on your need so we have our vision we have our goals we know how to get there we have identified the major areas and when we get this flexible funding we, we then still uh, we then again take the responsibility of 
resourcing our plan, our priorities based on, on our, our need. That means since you have a small money which will not be enough to cover everything, we had to really focus on the select, you know, the priority areas, the primary health care, even from the primary health care, you know, some of the high uh, impact areas, and we tried to use the money wisely. So that's the reason for the success. We own the whole process from the goal setting, how to achieve it, and even prioritize based on what we think should be our priority. As I said, the five ones, maternal, child health, HIV, malaria, TB, and then resourcing the specific uh, actions based on our on, on our need and using the funding wisely. So focused on high impact, high intervention. Firstly on primary health care, but even the other areas were like high intervention. So that was the, the reason for the success factor. But behind this, the bigger reason for the success is the political will of the government. There is a strong political commitment to make this happen. For instance, focus on primary health care is in our party's manifesto. And that's what the party committed to give to the people. And there is already high political commitment from the start. So that, I think, helped uh, mobilize not only the, our communities, but all, as I said earlier, but even our uh, partners. So the political will was really important. Then the ethnic diversity was already taken care of. Ethiopia is a federal state now, and we have, uh, you know, fe uh, regional governments. And like what we just said, we also have this regular meeting with uh, our regions. Uh, we plan together, by the way, we have just completed the next year's plan together, and we meet on regular basis to track our, our plan also. Even that is addressed. And the success factor, that's one of the success factors, because the federal government and the regions have a clear framework or modality of working together and setting a goal and achieving, uh, you know, working together towards that clear guidelines for that of partnership and of really working together for a better result. So I believe these are the this is very interesting. I, I would also note, in addition to the question of <coughs> how, how to uh, um, lead the process of, of uh, dialogue between the central or national government and the implementing entities, entities in, the, in the periphery, the commonality of the, the way you address this dilemma that Sujasta was talking about of strengthening uh, horizontally the system while having your five priorities. Uh, which is another complication of dealing with, with uh, some of the donor countries, that very often they, they come. Uh, I, I have found that the solution to this tension is what um, Jaime Sepulveda has called the diagonal approach. Not just vertical, not just horizontal, but a diagonal approach where you have your priorities, in your case your five priorities, but you use those to drive the improvements and build your primary health system uh, so that it can also tackle other things because when you're successful with this initial set of priorities, you will then have other priorities because, you know, if all those children that are not going to die are now going to live long enough to develop cancer and heart disease and diabetes and mental illness, and that, that's the dynamic of the health transition, and that's why the diagonal is so important. You, you tackle your current priorities, but you prepare your system for the consequences of success, which By is... By the way, Julio, to interrupt you, that was what exactly we have agreed with our partners. Even the vertically raised funding, like Global Fund and PEPFA, right. we say to our partners, we can save lives now while building the, the system. Exactly. So these are our priorities, you know, building the health system while saving lives. So help us to use Global Fund funding and PEPFA funding to build the system as well. And that was exactly what we did. And we used a bulk of the funding from Global Fund and PEPFA, uh, which was vertically raised, to use it, as you said, horizontally or diagonally to build the yeah. health system, save lives now, build the system, and prepare the system to better fight uh, for the Wh future. What's next, what's coming next. Exactly. Uh, we're also privileged to have Lord Nigel Crisp, uh, who is the former uh, permanent secretary of the Department of Health in the UK and also CEO of the National Health Service, the largest health organization in the world. Uh, Nigel. Well, 
thank you for saving me an introduction. <laughs> um, I want to ask a very oh, uh, I wanted to ask a very simple question of uh, of all three panelists actually, which is we've talked about money being short, but actually staffing is short as well. That's the other great resource constraint that you're all struggling with. I, I know that one of the ways that people handle it, and I and I know a bit about in Ethiopia and in India how you have design new cadres of staff, as you've talked about, and, been, uh, and change the way people work and change the teams and so on. But I'd be interested for you to speculate into the future and say, how radical do you think you can be in terms of changing job roles and redesigning the way teams work, particularly perhaps with new technology, um, so that actually what you're doing is something that's really rather different from what you might see in the facilities here in Harvard, for example. That's very good. Yeah. So this is a question to to all three of you because this is where the, probably the single most complex issue in the health system. Maybe let me start with Recep. In this very comprehensive reform, how how did you handle the the issue of um, <coughs> of human resources and and recasting new roles for for um, health professionals and other health workers? Aslında. Well, uh, actually, the, the question might well have been, well, after this uh, huge transformation in the course of 10 years, uh, what's your major problem? And I, I would have said uh, human resources. So that's a very relevant uh, question, Nigel. Compared to Western European uh, countries, we have half of uh, the uh, number of doctors uh, they do have. What we had to do was increase productivity uh, by uh, producing uh, performance incentives uh, in the form of uh, payments. So we did that and now we increased uh, the number of visits to physicians by two and a half times and then the time uh, spent by a physician per patient has doubled. So uh, overall a five times increase in productivity. So uh, Turkey, uh, I believe, poses an excellent example of how you can use performance-based payment system to increase uh, productivity. To facilitate the same process in the primary healthcare, we introduced this uh, encompassing uh, family medicine system. Interesting. Sujata, I understand the conditional cash transfer also partly goes to the health worker and how is that part uh, of uh, a more general effort to meet the challenge that Nigel Crisp has just identified? Um, to address, I mean, I'd just like to address what I just said and I'll come back to you. Um, you know, in India, we are really still very doctor dominated, unfortunately. And uh, with the result that our attempts to have nurse practitioners who could do several other procedures um, which would take the load off or the requirement of a gynecologist to undertake those procedures was never really allowed to take form. Uh, likewise, uh, there was a very high level political articulation for having some three-year trained, uh, somebody like a health assistant in the, in the United States to go in and work in the primary healthcare centers. That too met with a lot of opposition from the doctors. So um, the, the, the shortages are offering an opportunity in a way because the doctors are getting segmented. The specialists are going more and more into tertiary care, and uh, the, the non-specialists are gravitating towards the district hospitals and the semi-district hospitals, leaving the primary care relatively unattended. So this is an opportunity, really, for India to uh, push forward and create new cadres of, uh, and paramedicalizing the profession a lot more than what it has done so far. And that's the only opportunity that we really need to seize and we need to focus on and uh, overcome the, the objections of the medical doctors because it's impossible to create that many doctors in such a short time. So one is paramedicalizing the workforce uh, is I think uh, should be and will be a focus area. And this has come up again and again uh, in our ability to meet the maternal uh, health needs on account of the huge amount of demand that was generated on account of the conditional cash transfers. So there are two things that happened. One was conditional cash transfers did uh, increase the demand for institutional deliveries, but it challenged and put a lot of pressure on the supply side to meet the demand, uh, both in quality dimension and also on the human resource dimension. So the overall productivity of the doctors also did increase because they were doing many more deliveries than they were doing before 
uh, on account of the conditional cash transfer. So, that was one advantage we got from the gynecologist, but the pressure to have more nurse practitioners being able to take the load off because we have acute shortage of gynecologists and anesthetists in the country as a whole and in the public sector as, a, as, a, as an issue. And the third is a policy issue that will definitely be coming along probably uh, to me to really scale up uh, the conditional cash transfer benefits of uh, reducing maternal mortality would be to take advantage of the gynecologists who are working in the private sector. Now, how do we incentivize them and how do we get them to work for a public health goal will be the one major, major challenge uh, in the country because really 75 percent of the gynecologists work in the private sector. So, the possibility of scaling up access and reducing maternal mortality cannot be met by the government alone and will necessarily have to engage the private sector. Now, what are the rules of the game of engagement? How are we, how are we going to use our financing instruments to try and incentivize them appropriately without letting them take charge and hike up the, the rates to make it unaffordable for government? These are some of the policy challenges that are going to be facing us. So, um, to your question, how has conditional cash transfer helped? Uh, we have incentivized. Uh, that both the demand side from getting women to the facilities, we have incentivized the workers and the doctors to do much more than what they were doing earlier because they get per procedure, they get some amount of uh, money, not, not through the GSY which goes directly to the woman, but also through the, through the other insurance mechanisms that we have which in the in country. Which in a sense is similar in, in the sense that it's linked to productivity and this is, stresses this crucial role of ministries of health of of stewardship, of providing the framework for policies and managing the relationship with all the complex actors that, uh, the, all the actors that make the health system so complex. What about Ethiopia, Tedros, the, yeah. the challenge of human resources? Yeah, uh, by the way, that's one of the most challenging ones and I'm glad this thing is raised because one of the challenges even I would have mentioned from the start when you asked them, uh, the question was human resources. In Ethiopia, our government um, really started by understanding the root cause of the problem of the human resource crisis. Uh, our government believes that the human resource crisis in Africa or in Ethiopia specifically is due to the mismatch between demand and supply. There is a huge demand but we are not supplying it even with the capacity that countries uh, have. Of course some people say it's brain drain brain drain has its contributions, but it's not the major one. The major one is the mismatch between supply and demand. Then after setting, uh, after agreeing on this as a major problem, as the root cause of the problem, then we have designed a strategy or selected two combined strategies of flooding and retention. So to deliberately overproduce and also introduce retention mechanisms. And we have tested this strategy, especially in the mid and lower, lower health professionals. And since, as I said earlier, the focus is primary health care, we used this, uh, uh, you know, two solutions, uh, flooding and retention, uh, for the primary health care to produce tens of thousands and then deploy them and introduce some incentives to, to, to keep them. And it worked. So now in Ethiopia, we, we, we don't really raise, uh, you know, the uh, health professionals mid and low level as a problem. And you don't have the issue with the, the doctors that Sujata was then, talking about. No, that's not mid and low, that's high. Yeah, level. I mean the higher opposing then, the mid and low. You yeah, then when you go to the high, we're using the same strategy. And for instance, the number of GPs we, you know, the students for medical school, we used to enroll only throughout the country 300, five or six years ago. Now, since the past three years, we have enrolled average of 1,400. And this year, we have enrolled 2,600. So this is the flood. For medical side. school. Exactly, medical school. And we have increased the number of medical schools in the country from around four or five, five, six years ago now to over 23. So this is, uh, uh, you know, the transformation or the health reform covers almost everything, human resources, healthcare financing, pharmaceutical finance supply systems, regulatory, and, and, and everything. It's just a comprehensive uh, reform. So it covers the human resource. And 
uh, we believe that in the next five years that will uh, stabilize and we're opening up new specialty trainings. The challenge will be especially with the highly skilled, you know, the um, attrition still, uh, because we may not be able to, uh, you know, implement a very comprehensive retention strategy that will keep them in country. But if you train more, even if you lose, it may be okay. It's when you train less and you lose even a few from those you train, then it's painful to lose. But when you train more, you lose some, still it would be okay. By the way, Sri Lanka and Egypt addressed it that way. They, for instance, <coughs> Egypt trains, uh, I mean, graduates around 10,000 per year versus the U.S. maybe 12,000 or 13,000 which is huge comparing the population of the two, the two countries. So that's what we believe could be the answer. But as also Nigel said, uh, it's very key to do task shifting also. While waiting for specialists and, and so on, you have to do something now. And we're tra training non-physician clinicians like health officers on emergency surgery, like caesarean section skills, acute abdomen, you know, appendectomy skills, and so on, life-saving ones. And we have trained the first two batches, batches this year. Uh, you know, we train physician assistants, you call them in the U.S. Uh, we have health officers equivalent to that, and we train them for three years. And they can successfully do caesarean section and others life-saving in interventions. And the task shifting should not stay there. And even uh, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners are trained, diploma nurses, and they can manage HIV, including treatment. And uh, health extension workers, these are high school graduates with one year training, they can assist delivery. So what nurses used to do is being done by the front line, the health extension workers, and what used to be done like uh, HIV treatment by doctors is now being done by uh, nurses. And surgery like what used to be done by OBGYN or surgeons is being done now by physician assistance or, or equivalent. So you can use a combination of that strategic solution, flooding and retention strategy, something that can give you the solution down the years, five years or 10 years from now, and use quick wins to address the current problems by task shifting. So using a combination of that. A, a, a combination crisis. approach and a comprehensive um, plan to deal with, the, with, the, with this, which is probably the most complex issue. Well, the great um, enemy of um, webcasting is time, and obviously we 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 have a, a, a great um, panel here. So we have time for one more question. Uh, if anyone has uh, one last question, please go ahead. Dr. Lawrence Cohen, professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. I would like to ask you one question for each of you, if you could estimate the percentage of adults and children in your country that have access to health care. I would be interested to know that with all the, the reformation and the hard work that you put in, the estimate of the percentage of adults and children in your country that have access to health care. And I will then ask you to answer the question and give some closing remarks and we will close today uh, a brief set of final reflections. Uh, Recep, please. Well, uh, for access, we have no difference of access uh, among the citizens. All citizens have access to emergency care, primary health care, and uh, other uh, higher levels of uh, care. Uh, no discrepancies at all. I believe that's uh, something difficult to under, uh, comprehend in the USA, but uh, that's the case. <laughs> so uh, taking this opportunity, I, I would like to conclude also. Uh, like I said at the very beginning, the major concern uh, for a health minister uh, should be the ethics uh, of this whole thing. Every morning uh, we wake up, we need to uh, refresh our intentions once again, because there's the world of politics outside, and there's a whole bunch of opposition uh, waiting. They are going to try and push you to the corner uh, every day to uh, make you become defensive. So uh, be courageous and be offensive. I think it's a tough question for me to answer for the simple reason what do you mean by access. If you mean by coverage, 
uh, through insurance schemes, formal insurance programs, it's about 25%. That's 250 million people. Uh, if you mean by universal access free of cost to certain set of services, uh, like malaria vector-borne diseases, TB, including MDR-TB, HIV, including treatment, second line, um, or you take the whole range of uh, reproductive and child health, immunization, universal. There's no one denied, and they get universal access to that. But if you were to take uh, an access to an appendectomy, if he's not covered through the, uh, which is the remaining population, 25% are covered, but the remaining 75, yes, there is some difficulty because we do have a very large amount of out-of-pocket expenditures. So something is going on there. Now, if you really took access as uh, saying traditional medicines, which is in the community level, we still believe a lot in Ayurveda and and, and uh, the traditional systems of medicine, they do have some access. So it's very difficult, but if you looked at the service and said, how many are denying themselves health care uh, because of, and there could be financial reasons or so, that is about 19% uh, who probably need health care and are not able to afford to get access on account of financial or other logistic reasons, I would say 19%. So it all depends on what you define as access, physical access and effective access. So I think it's a bit of a mixed picture. Thank you, Sujata. Tedros, uh, yeah, your answer. Uh, thank you. Um, I will approach it as what uh, Sujata said. Uh, if you take the primary health care, as I said, it's our priority. And the primary health care has two lines. The first one is the health post. So we have health posts throughout the country in each, each village is covered. And all the services given by health post is, is free. That covers immunization, treatment for malaria, treatment for uh, TB, and um, pneumonia treatment, uh, assisting deliveries, and all the teachings and, uh, you know, uh, everything under a 16 package on nutrition and, and so on. All this is, is free and the basic. And considering the major causes of uh, death in Ethiopia, I think that service, that free service, really covers a lot and contributing towards uh, saving unnecessary, uh, you know, uh, deaths and uh, morbidity. Then at the health center level, uh, again, most of the services are, are free. So the two combine, the health post and health center, uh, the, the access is, of course, because of some cultural or religious beliefs, some people prefer to use traditional uh, practices, but uh, that coverage is around 90% now and from less than 30% five, six years ago. So the basic services are uh, really close, not only close to the communities, but also providing free services. And we believe that's really addressing the major health problems, contributing to the bulk of the deaths and uh, unnecessary morbidity. Uh, so uh, that's how I would like to, to answer it. Uh, thank you very much. Well, I want to <coughs> thank our panelists and also the members of the audience for your comments. Uh, we are closing with this uh, forum at the Harvard School of Public Health, a very intense week. Uh, uh, the inaugural uh, Harvard Ministerial uh, Leadership in Health uh, program activity, which has been this meeting of um, 16 uh, current ministers of health and about four or five former ministers of health, including um, uh, one who was also a prime minister, Pascual Mokumbi, who's here, the former prime minister of uh, Mozambique. Uh, and we've had all the examples of um, transformational leadership that you have seen here today in the comments of our three panelists and uh, Anya's very, very insightful uh, observations as well. Um, uh, we're, we will continue doing this. Uh, this program uh, has been made possible thanks to uh, the support of the Children Investments Fund Foundation with uh, additional uh, support from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, and it helps Harvard University realize um, what I think is one of the main functions of a modern university, <coughs> which is to serve as a convening space where we can bring together uh, those who are uh, in the uh, front lines of formulating policy and transforming uh, health systems with um, those who are in the academic settings trying to understand 
uh, and generate evidence base and creating a dialogue, a, 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 a network of mutual support uh, and, and shared learning uh, because we learn enormously from the actual experiences of leaders like the ones who are here who have been at Harvard. We will convene again next year. This is a long-term uh, activity of Harvard University and we hope again to keep bringing to this forum uh, many of the world leaders that are making the uh, dream of better health for all a reality, not just in their individual countries, but also by setting an example for the rest of the world. Thank you to all for your presence here. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.